Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Now or Never, the show that celebrates what it takes to try and reminds you that you're not alone when you do. I'm Trevor Deneen. I am Ifi Chiwetelu, and there is one thing, Trevor, that I have given up on so many times, and that is the possibility of ever getting anything back that I've lost on public transit. <laughs> I have lost wallets, keys, full shopping bags, most of my pride. But today, today, Trevor, I get my revenge. Ooh, are you going to go pickpocket on the subway? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm going to get to the bottom of what happens to the things that get left behind. The next station is Bay, Bay Station. Inside Bay Subway Station in Toronto, in a windowless room where you can feel the rumble of the trains underneath your feet, is the TTC Lost Articles office. I'm well, how are you? Good, I'm just a nice to meet nice you. Meet you. Where there are rows and rows and rows of shelves filled with stuff. So many AirPods. AirPods, keys, um, the wallets, again, you name it. We we have it here. Some cute hats over there that we can find. Um, some drills, you know, umbrellas. <laughs> oh, this one has a $100 gift card poking out at it. <laughs> Hang on, is this just cash wrapped up? Oh no, it doesn't look like money. Uh, it's a birth certificate, actually, that was lost. Yes. Oh no. I know, so it's kind of, it's kind of, um, yeah, just one of the things that we get. Little items like this to diplomas to um, even divorce papers, which is really funny. Yeah. Um, oh, maybe they left it on purpose. You know what? That, that's what we we're all thinking, but no one wanted to say anything. So <laughs> I'll say it. I'll say it. My guide through these forgotten items is Lost Article Supervisor Justin Belmarez. And according to him, he does a lot more than just supervise. Reunite the processor of items, the ensure that they get the cash that's in their wallets, um, all of that good stuff. Okay. People in your life must ask you this all the time, because if I had someone who worked at the Lost and Found, (laughs) I'd be like, what is the weirdest thing you have found or you have seen end up here? That's a good one. So one of the weirdest things we've got in here, uh, we found like a plastic bag with about fourteen thousand dollars and about cash. cash. Canadian. Canadian, and also has about fifteen hundred um, U.S. with their passport, car keys, and stuff like that. You actually are reminding me. I, I left fourteen thousand. <laughs> it was already picked up. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. yes, yeah, by yeah, my associate. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Exactly. Um, so we did have to turn that one into the police. Um, but other items that are that have stood out to me. So there is one person that misplaced, like they put their tile um, in the collector's bucket or when they pay their fare. Uh, apparently this tile was something that means a lot to them, very sentimental, came from their, uh, their home country. Um, so they were really panicked. Um, we had to search through all of those revenue um, in order to find this one 
like tiny one inch by one inch tile, but we were able to reunite it. So they were really surprised by that and was touched um, by how far we went to give them this item. What is the energy people? Actually, let's walk over here. I think I see something shiny. <laughs> Oh, it's just more AirPod cases. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just more AirPods, you know. We found an engagement ring here at the TTC. Um, the fiance was very much um, kind of like flailing around. Just this was their um, last place that they can get to. Um, but we did have it. So after Amazing. that, yeah. So after that, we were like, you know, make sure you treat your fiance and don't lose it ever again because, um, you know, we yeah. don't advise that. But he was so happy that he was still able to pick it up and yeah. that his fiance wouldn't be mad anymore, yeah. which is great. I mean, you're, you're really meeting people at some of their most like desperate moments of like, let me try. And I'll admit, I don't know that I've ever followed up on anything I've lost on TTC. I just sort of feel like, well, it's, it's someone else's there. now. But working here has actually taught me the value that there are still good people out there, you know, especially with the landscape of what's going on within our communities. We, we see the rise of, of, of prices going up and to to see wallets with, again, like $14,000 um, be returned is, is such a big thing and, and gives us hope. Um, so we always sell our customers in the front because they always try to like throw money at us or like, we'll buy you whatever. Um, all we say is just to pass it along, uh, to yeah. pass it forward. You're like part supervisor, part lost and found detective. Just a little, yeah, <laughs> just a little. <laughs> That sounds like the world's greatest tickle trunk, Evie. Like anything you can think of is there in that lost and found. Yeah, and as a nosy person, I thought I would just want to dive into all the items and look at people's things. But the longer I was there, the more I started to realize that it is so personal to have access to some of these things. Like there are so many stories behind every item on the shelf. You know, how did it get there? When did they realize it was gone? What is someone doing right now trying to get back to it? I really felt the weight of all of that. Today on Now or Never, what's lost is found, or at least, hopefully. A young man finds a connection that he needs. I've never really had a male figure to do things and share experiences with. He was the one that introduced me to geocaching when we first got matched with Big Brothers Big Sisters. Uh, it's basically like treasure hunting, so who doesn't like looking for treasure like little pirates? Ah, <laughs> We got it! That's clever! And a musician rolls up her sleeves to preserve her language. When an elder dies, it's like losing an entire encyclopedia. And that very much applies with my, with my grandmother. So the language, I think, is the, the greatest loss. And it was, it's actually, I'm still grieving it. And can we find the owner of a decades-old diary? I knew the kids put a lot of effort into these, and they deserved to get them, if I could find them. And uh, I'm getting up in age, and... I'd like to see that these go to the right places while I have my senses and, you know, I have my health. This is Now or Never. Lost and found. Found you. It's <laughs> right where you left me.
In order to find something that is lost, you have to go on a bit of a search. So today, we're starting at a home in Winnipeg where the Port family live with their three birds who each fly freely between the rooms. And oh, uh, did I mention? One of them can actually talk. Love, hello. Are you shy? Shy? No way. How you doing? <laughs> he gets up around 6.30, so he comes to the counter and he wants to eat. <laughs> Every morning I give him like bread and peanut butter. And like if you shake the bag, he gets so excited and then he opens his mouth and he's like waiting to eat. It's so cute. Jane, Kevin, and their young sons are devoted to their pet birds, especially the youngest bird, Chuck, their Indian ringed parrot. Chuck, actually, we banded right away, right? He is a yellow, bright yellow with a, kind of like a red ring on his neck. He can talk. Um, he knows how to say, how you doing? Thank you. They have kind of like a, I think like a, a mind of a five-year-old or something, or so they can learn quite a few phrases and their personality comes out. So he also, also likes to bath, usually in the morning after he eats and... He'll sometimes even just fly in the washroom and into the shower and he wants to bath. He's a really, really a funny bird. We just allow them to fly uh, in the house because I feel like they're part of the family. They shouldn't be caged, right? So that's why they fly around, they, yeah, they walk around, uh, they come to us. So, yeah, he's sitting on my shoulder right now. It sounds so sweet. But this is an episode about things that are lost and found, and we're talking about birds, not in cages. I'm, I'm stressed. I'm tense. <laughs> As you should be, because just a few weeks ago, there was, you know, an incident when Kevin and Jane and their two sons were heading out for dinner. We were kind of all about to leave about 7 o'clock and getting everything ready. My wife had a, a casserole to bring to her parents. We're going to go visit. And then just a perfect storm I call it of my son holding the door open me coming in because I forgot my wallet my wife coming out and then my son just leaving the door open for that few seconds then Chuck came quickly to to Jane and quickly flew off and suddenly went outside as I watching him fly away actually my heart is broken because I was just so scared that we may not find him right it's like an open space and, but part of me, I'm kind of hopeful that he will just go by the window and show up like, you know, he's going to be there. Even in the evening, she put a perch outside with water and uh, food just in case he would be hungry that if by chance he found our place that he could eat. And like, you don't know how a bird's going to react outside because he's never been outside. Is he just going to fly around the house? Is he going to go like straight, you know, eight miles away? Like, you just have no idea. Like just to put your mind into a bird is almost impossible. So we were just panicking and going around our area, I tried to fight him, I think until 9, 9.30. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, we didn't know what else to do. We knew it was kind of not a lot of hope to find him, but we, we couldn't just like sit and do nothing. So I checked the Facebook and I actually signed up to be a member of all the lost and found that I can find in Winnipeg. 
I couldn't sleep actually. I was up all night. Like I was checking the windows to see if it's kind of close by. Um, I have a flashlight, <laughs> but I couldn't really find him. I tried to call. We call uh, Chuck, Chuck. Um, then no answer, right? And so I was actually crying that night too because, like, oh my God, like uh, our bird is gone, right? And I said, no more pets after this. It's traumatizing to lose a pet. <laughs> It is traumatizing to lose a pet because they're such a big part of our lives. So Jane and Kevin continued to search for Chuck, riding bikes and driving around, just hoping to catch a glimpse of their bird and lure him back home. Meanwhile, six kilometers east of Jane and Kevin's home, the day after Chuck flew away, Trevor Van Hewitt was working outside in his backyard with a friend. The backyard where every day, twice a day, Trevor feeds the wild birds in his neighborhood. When my parents were alive, uh, my mom actually loved birds. She had a, a feeding, like a bird feeding station. And so I could, like, you know, as a little kid, I was like, Mom, what are you doing? And she said, oh, I'm just bird watching. And then, yeah, next, you know, I just caught on and then it just carried on. Yeah, so. So we had, uh, so me and my buddy, we just uh, got back uh, from a hockey draft. And then next thing you know, there was like a, a yellow bird that, you know, came and flew right beside uh, my buddy Grant. I went to the bird, and then I started talking to the bird, and then I said, hello, hello, and then it started saying what I said. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, it's a, a parrot. I fed him, uh, like, lots of bird seed and all that stuff there, and and uh, I gave him uh, some water and my goodness, the, like he was starving and he was thirsty and all that stuff. It was starting to get cold and all that stuff. And Grant was saying, you know, um, you know, a, a bird like that, you know, it probably won't last too long. So maybe just take it inside and, and, you know, have it in my room. So he actually went on my finger. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I got a bird on my finger. And then all of a sudden, I guess he was going like, he was uh, going side by side, side by side, uh, coming around, around my arm, and then he was coming over to my shoulder, and then next thing you know, he was sitting right on my shoulder. Trevor got the yellow bird in his house and then started knocking on doors, looking for its owner, starting with his neighbor, Denise Vandell. Hi, I'm Denise Vandell. I'm Trevor's neighbor. Trevor came to my place and uh, he says, have you, do you know anyone who lost a yellow cockatiel? And I says, no. And then I looked over and there, there's this little yuck, yellow cockatiel sort of munching, around, munching away. Well, he looked very happy. <laughs> I was surprised. I mean, where does a yellow bird come from? <laughs> and I says, you know, you should put that on Facebook. And he said, I don't have Facebook. I says, well, I'll put it on Facebook. Because I know how dear animals are to people. I know if I lost my little kitty cat. I would be heartbroken as well. I mean, it was just, just what you do. I think it was within an hour, I saw a message and it, they said, does it look like this? And they showed me a picture and go, yeah, that's the one. And she says, well, you better contact the owner. I'm contacting the owner. <laughs> and so I contact the owner. I phoned them actually. And, um, and I says, hey, you don't know me, but I think we found your bird. And she went, oh. I says, it's got a ring around its neck. She goes, that's it. And I went, Oh, good. Oh, I was...
was so relieved and thankful to Denise and I was actually crying. It's like a happy moment for me and so thankful that, you know, it's like so impossible. I think the chances of finding a bird is probably 10% or not even. Then I got that news. Oh my God, like it's like I'm going to have Chuck again and he's safe. So I was so happy and I was crying because it's a happy and thankful cry actually. I've never uh, had something experiences like this ever in my life. It's absolutely big, you know, for me and for them to have their their pet back. I was really, ha I was in tears. But I guess I know the feeling if I had lost something and found. There's a lot of good people out there, so um, that actually cares. Like you know, uh, they could actually just let it go and not call the person or I don't know they could keep the bird as well right it felt like community just all came together and helped us find our bird Chuck looks so innocent in these pictures <laughs> look at the the army of people that it took to reunite him it's amazing isn't it now raise your hand if you want to see this bird we're going to share photos with you of Chuck his family and Trevor who found him on our website at cbc.ca slash now or never. This is Now or Never. I'm Ifi Chiwetelu. And I'm Trevor Deneen. And in order to find this next story, we had to go back in time a few years. Yes, we had to blow the dust off the Now or Never archives. <laughs> and let me tell you, it was worth it because when this story originally aired, it actually helps solve a mystery, and we're not done yet. If this story were to have a title, it could easily borrow one from the Hardy Boys series and be called Mr. Britton and the Case of the Long Lost Diaries. Hi, I'm Hugh Britton, and for the last 43 years, I've been trying to return diaries that my students had written when they were in elementary school. I have it right in front of me, long one, it says devil's cat and there's a picture of a cat with a face like a devil and there's another picture just above that showing these people with long hair and drums and it says heavy metal and uh, rap is cool it's written on there too don't open high voltage no trespassing private property get lost and don't be nosy. That's written on the back. I don't think they want you opening that. <laughs> back in the 70s, 80s, and up until he retired in 1995, Hugh Britton taught at Havelock Elementary School in St. John, New Brunswick. Mr. Britton was passionate about inspiring his students to write. So for years, he'd ask his students to write diary entries, and he promised never, ever to read them. Each morning, they would write whatever they liked, what they felt about certain things, what was bothering them. They were able to be themselves because they were going to be the only ones that would read them. And I said I would, upon graduation, see that they got these and they could look back to see what their thoughts were when they were 12 years old. So I lived in the neighborhood where I taught I knew where a lot of these children lived, so I hand-delivered them. And, of course, some had moved away. So in the end, I was left with uh, 26 diaries, about 
I just didn't have the heart to dispose of them, so I uh, I kept them. Were you ever tempted to read them or open them over the years? No. It's funny how they sealed them up. Uh, some of the scotch tape has turned so yellow that it's almost fallen off. <laughs> 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 I do think it's one thing to not read them, but to never throw them away. Like, what made you hold on to these things for decades? Well, I knew the kids put a lot of effort into these, and they deserved to get them if I could find them. And uh, I'm getting up in age, and I felt that, you know, I'd like to see that these go to the right places while I have my senses and, you know, I have my health. If I can bring a bright spot into somebody's day, it's worth the effort. Hugh has been retired now for almost three decades, and his pile of journals has shrunk a little bit every year. The first breakthrough in his search for his former students came when he met Cher, a woman who grew up in St. John, but was never in the same school as Mr. Britton. Hello, my name is Cheryl Rains, and I help Mr. Britton track down some of his former students. I don't usually follow our school pages, but my friend Kathy does. And so she posted it on her page, and it said Mr. Britton was looking for help. And just the first glance, I knew majority of the last names. So it's like, this can be done, and I like searching. So just put out the word, and the information was flying. We were finding them all over the country. It was like Christmas, really. It's like, I know where this one works. So-and-so's married to that one. That one married my cousin. You didn't know Mr. Britton at all before this, did you? No, I didn't. But when I started talking to him, I found out he went to school with my father. You know what? That probably fueled a little bit to my fire. My dad has since passed, and I know dad would got a kick out of that, that Hugh, after all those years, had those letters and was still looking for people. And so from Nova Scotia to British Columbia, all the way to Wisconsin, Hugh began to mail back the final diaries to their owners. Austin Hutton received his. I'm from New Brunswick and I was in Mr. Britton's grade six class in 87, 88. I remember drawing basketballs, that, that part clicked. But I couldn't, for the life of me, I couldn't tell you what I wrote in that until it showed up. I had no idea. And then I was a little bit nervous to kind of reach out um, at first, just to say like, oh, hey, I heard you have these diaries. And he sent it pretty quickly. But I was like a little kid kind of waiting for it. Like, is it here yet? Is it going to be here yet? What was it like when it finally arrived? Oh, I was stoked. I pretty much ran back from the mailbox and I opened it up. And when I first started reading it, I was like, I started to get a little bit embarrassed for myself. (laughs) What were you embarrassed by? Um, well, because I'm very like, oh, I love so-and-so, and I'm asking this person out, and yeah, yeah jeepers. And I, and, I, and I can remember being like that, you know, always chasing girls. It was, it was a good time. It was good. It's, the 80s was a hell of a ride. <laughs> <laughs> this is, uh, it says June 9th, 1988. Today, I'm going to mow my lawn and spend a dollar of my pay on candy. I talked with Cindy all night. She might break off with Jacob, and I'll ask her out. We had a tour of Beaconsfield, and it was great. I was Cindy's partner. Wowee! (laughs) P.S. We made up wrestling names, and I'm Honky Tonk Hutton. (laughs) It's a little piece of history. It may not be much history, but it's, you know, my history, and it's... 
it's real. As you can tell, these diaries are bringing people a lot of joy and nostalgia. But for Hugh, it's meant even more because it's allowed him to reconnect with old students and see where their lives have taken them. Now, he's returned almost all of the diaries, but he's having trouble finding the final three people. What would it mean to you to return all of them? Well, it would give me a satisfaction, like, hey, I did it. <laughs> I would love to see if we could help find these final people. So, like, are you able to read the names from the diaries and maybe someone listening knows that person? Or maybe that person is listening right now? Uh, one is a Shane Whitehouse. And the other one is a Kimberly Annette Longley. And the other one is Heather Gray. If you return these three and they're all gone, do you think there'll be a part of you that will miss having them? Yeah, uh, because, you know, my communications probably uh, will come to an end. But uh, now I wish that I had done it more often. It'd be kind of fun. Hey, at the end of the day, at least if one of them remembers that rap is cool, then it's a win. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. My favorite part about this story, EP, is that since we recorded it, Hugh has returned two of those last three diaries. But our work here is not done because he has one final diary left and we need to help him get it back to its rightful owner. So if you know Kimberly Annette Longley, who attended Havelock Elementary in St. John, New Brunswick in 1982, please let us know and help us return her diary. This is Now or Never. I'm Ifi Chiwetelu. And I'm Trevor Deneen. And today we're diving into the lost and found and finding the stories behind the treasured items looking for home. You know, I've heard the saying that hindsight is twenty twenty, and that never feels more true than right after I have lost something. All the things that you should have and could have done become just so obvious. Well, right now, 10 hours north of Vancouver, BC, 30 minutes east of Prince George, musician Kim Gucci is at her wood pile on her traditional territory in the Claitley Tune community, doing all she can to make sure she doesn't live in regret. I would grab a piece of wood and I would go plakai, and I would count the wood. Namco, dangi, and then it became a part of my body memory. For more than 10 years, Kim Gucci has been on a mission to learn Claitly, a local dialect of Dekef. It's a challenge to learn because there are so few fluent speakers left to learn from. There are very few people left on this planet that speak the Claitly Dekef language very few and and maybe two fluent speakers left tag oh am i gonna get all ten tag spoozy kim gucci clately to us day my name is kim gucci and i am here on my ancestral territory the clately tene first nation and i 
am recording a, an album of children's music in my ancestral languages, which encompasses Sekwetmukshin, which is the Shushwap language, the Cree language, and the Dakath language. I just actually taught myself how to play ukulele because I thought, if I'm going to be playing music for kids, I need to learn to play an ukulele because they're so fun. And they're only four strings, and they don't hurt your fingers as much. That is just a small taste of the children's music Kim is recording these days. Kim felt a new urgency to preserve the language for the next generation after her grandmother passed away in 2019. Mary Gucci was a language keeper and one of its last fluent speakers. Yeah, this is uh, my granny Mary, my Atsu. Yeah, it's a photo of my grandmother when she was, it was her 95th birthday, and she always dressed, honestly thought she was the queen. She was so healthy, you know. She was in her 90s, but she exercised. She had this crazy little, it was like a sock or something that she had these sandbags in that weighed about maybe five pounds, and she would, when she was watching Jeopardy, she would like, lift like use them to lift weights they always sat by her chair and and the, during the commercials she would like stand up sit down stand up sit down because she just knew that if she didn't keep moving she would lose it she she wasn't ready to go like she still had she even said it from the hospital that she said i still have so much work to do i'm i'm not done when an elder dies it's like losing an entire encyclopedia and that very much applies with my with my grandmother so the language i think is the the greatest loss and it was it's actually i'm still grieving it I would spend time with her and I would ask her to tell me, like to translate, like I would I would say a line like, it's a beautiful day, and she would tell me, and and then I would say the next line and she would tell me and she would, and then we would write it out and then she would say, well, come back on Sunday, because she really would take her time to make sure it was accurate and then I would bring my recorder and record her and fortunately I have those recordings a beautiful day we were all together hunting fishing and picking berries it would be a dream to be able to think in Dhaka. Yeah, that would be a dream. I mean, it is a dream. I'm starting to realize that it, that Dhaka is not a difficult language to learn, and it's like it really does start with the vowels. And I know for certain that if I was to take some time off from touring and doing all the stuff that I'm doing and just 
hyper focus on language that I would catch on very quickly. I just know I could feel it. If you think about children's music, you think about nursery rhymes, you even think about the song Rockabye Baby, think about Bring Around the Rosie. These songs have a very dark kind of underlying message, but yet they're so they're they're lullabyish and they're they're you know they're beautiful. And intuitively I've done that with 215 plus because I'm singing in Dakath about these children but I'm I'm welcoming them home I'm I'm saying I'm singing in Dakath we are happy that you came that you have come back to us you know, the, the last lyric in the song is Hallelujah, I've been found. No more my body lie deep in the ground. Hallelujah, I've been found. I think it's important that we're educating our kids about the history, this dark history of this country, and what better way to do that in a song. And then have conversations with that would be like, well, you know, mommy, why, why is she singing that? Hallelujah, I've been found. I'm very aware that this album, it's for the child and all of us, especially for those people whose childhoods were taken. My grandmother, Mary Gucci, is so proud of me. And it's not even a, if she was here, I know she's here. I feel, I can hear her, I could see her sweet smile. And um, good job, Kimmy. Yeah. And I know that I'm honoring her and that feels good. And Thanks to the contributions of elders like Kim's grandmother, the Claitley dialect is having a resurgence. There are online dictionaries, school language programs, and soon to come, Kim Gucci will be sharing a new children's album that's recorded in three indigenous languages, including Claitley dialect. That's coming out in the spring. You know, Evie, I can't decide what's harder to find. An object that you are, you're hunting for, that you're trying to find, or something less tangible, like, let's say, a, a relationship. You know what, Trevor? Why choose? <laughs> right now, AJ Keller and his 13-year-old little brother, Colby Matthews, are wandering around an Edmonton parking lot trying to do both at the same time. There's a little bit of fresh snow, so that could make things a little difficult. Obviously got to be in the rocks. Uh, if you look at the map, Colby, it looks like it's kind of closer to the, this grassy area with all these dead grasses. I don't know, I, I kind of feel like maybe it's closer to the sign, Colby. I don't know if they would hide it here in these rocks, right? 
So remember the the hint? Ah. <laughs> we got it. That's clever. All right. Oh, did you bring the pen? There's a pencil. Oh, there's a pencil inside. Okay. We are just logging the cash. Basically, just write your name down on the little piece of paper that comes in the cash. Uh, solidifying ourselves in history, kind of. That's number one down. We're one for one. Okay, should we go get the next one? Yeah, I say so. Awesome! Yeah! Got one for one, man. Let's go. AJ and Colby are doing their very favorite thing, geocaching. It's something they've done regularly since they met a year and a half ago. Colby and AJ were matched through the Big Brothers Big Sisters mentoring program, and it was a big deal for Colby because he was on the wait list for two years before finding out that he finally had a big brother. It meant quite a bit to me when I found out that I had a big brother in my life that I could spend time with, do things with, because I've never really had a uh, male figure that could really take me places to um, do things and share experiences with. Geocaching has been a great way for Colby and I to get to know each other. Um, it's an activity that you can, you can be together and, and do a lot of talking at the same time and, and you're geocaching, you're looking for something, but at the same time you're talking about your day, you're talking about different topics as you go about. Um, you, you are working towards a common goal together and at the end of the day, if you find a cache, you're celebrating something together. So it's been a really good way for Colby and I to spend some time together and over the last year and a half, get to know each other. AJ signed up to be a big brother when he learned there were, and still are, thousands of kids on the wait list for the Big Brothers Big Sisters program. Now, since they found each other, it's been a perfect match. And so far, they've discovered more than 50 geocaches together. And that number, it just keeps growing. All right, Colby. See the map? Along that path, yeah. Yeah, so there's, you can see where the, on the map, you can see where the playground equipment is, and it looks like it's just north of the playground equipment. We know the general area, so let's go. All right, we are entering the park. The area is massive. I mean, there it's a huge empty field. And it's, it's also got a few trees along the side. And then it's also got a hill here uh, right next to the park and also where the geocache says it will be. Being out here looking for geocaches with Colby is awesome. He's, he's, his energy is, is really good. Um, he's excited to be out here. Uh, how excited he gets when he finds a geocache is always a lot of fun. And, and it's something that he's pretty passionate about. He, he was the one that introduced me to geocaching when we first got matched with Big Brothers Big Sisters. Uh, it's basically like treasure hunting. So who doesn't like looking for treasure like little pirates? Well, I think it would probably be somewhere around here, if I were to guess. Uh, I found it. You found it already? Yep. <laughs> I, saw, I saw nothing here, but then a shape here. It's wedged underneath the table, under the tabletop. Oh, it's, it's magnet. Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, personally, it's, it's a really fun experience because... 
his enthusiasm and his general energy, as he said about me, just gives off the good vibes needed to produce a good time geocaching. Do you think that we have uh, different roles as a team of geocachers? Because I kind of feel like I spend a bit more time looking at the map, but then when we get to where the area that we're going, I feel like you kind of take charge. Do you feel that way? Yeah. It's almost like telescope and microscope. Telescope looking far away, giving a general description of it. Microscope looking really close to find what you're looking for, you know? He's telescope, I'm microscope, obviously. I'm usually the one to find them, but he also does the occasion say like, hey, hey, Colby, look over here. <laughs> I maybe have spotted a few. Yeah, there's been times where we go and we try to find one and then maybe a squirrel took it or something. We're not sure. So it's, squirrel. it's not always successful, but hey, we're two for two today. Yeah, we have fun with it too. like the perfect pair. One of them is telescope, one of them is microscope. That's just good teamwork. This is Now or Never. I'm Trevor Deneen. And I'm Ifi Chiwetelu. And today we are on the search for things that are lost. And when you find a lost item, it's usually when you're out and about. I have found a wallet in a restaurant booth, a cell phone in the middle of a dog park, and I once came across an iPod just walking down the sidewalk. Very rarely do you find a lost item just sitting there waiting for you right outside your front door. Well, it was just a regular day. I went and I checked the mail and among some of our bills, um, the letter was there. And it really caught my attention when it was wrapped up in this plastic bag. And uh, the stamp on there was stamped, dated on 1971. So that's when I knew that this letter had been lost in the mail somewhere for almost 50 years in November now. When Scarlett Fonseca opened her Winnipeg mailbox that morning, she had no idea she'd also be opening up a half-century-old mystery. And when a 50-year-old letter appears in your mailbox, how can you resist trying to fill in the blanks? Unfortunately, or fortunately, I should say, uh, the envelope that the letter was in was damaged. Um, it was opened. Um, I needed to know exactly who these people were. So it did say, uh, Dear Karen, first of all. And at the end, it was signed uh, by the person who sent it. So we started doing a lot of research. Um, social media, <laughs> you can find out anything on social media nowadays. And um, I typed up this gentleman's name on there and um, I found uh, his obituary and he had passed actually a couple of years ago. And through there, a whole bunch of names, like they list like the children and grandchildren and everything kind of was making sense. So on Facebook, I followed this page uh, called If You Grew Up in Winnipeg and I posted something on there. And actually this morning, I got a response from the lady that the letter was addressed to. And uh, we were able to actually talk to her on the phone this morning.
Scarlett found the woman that this letter was addressed to all those years ago in 1971. Malcolm McLeod mailed it to his daughter, Karen Mueller, over five decades ago, but the letter never arrived. And so Scarlett arranged to put it in the mail again. But this time, it would be insured, priority posted, require a signature, and be hand-delivered to Karen almost 50 years later to the day. It, it must be just like amazing that this, this letter just sh shows up out of nowhere. <laughs> well, to get the call and then to actually speak to the people that, you know, went sleuthing is, uh, yeah, that's totally amazing. 50 mm -hmm. years. You hear about stories like this, but you never think it's going to happen to you. Yeah. So, yeah, you... quite, quite remarkable. Do you have the letter in front of you right now? Yeah, I have it. Uh, posted in Moose Jaw with the Yorkton Motor Hotel. And it is my dad's typical handwriting. And it is eight pages long. Yeah. Do, do you mind? Like, what? Can you read a couple of the, the first sentences of like what it says in the letter? Mm, okay. Sunday, 10 p.m. Dear Karen, as you can see, dear, I am in Yorkton tonight. I will work here tomorrow and drive to Swift Current. I hate to leave your mother so much, but it is my job. And of course, this is what life is all about, isn't it? We must do the things we must, even though it doesn't always suit our whims or wishes. Then it gets a bit emotional because my brother had died two and a half months prior. So then he's talking about uh, my brother and uh, described a lot of his uh, beliefs and and that he always had faith that he and my mom would see my brother again. Did this letter, did it fill in any blanks for you? It clarified uh, my dad's uh, views on my brother's death. My brother committed suicide quite suddenly, quite suddenly, unexpected. And uh, so it, it filled in some of the blanks. And the fact that he cared so much that he wanted to reach out to me. When you're reading that letter, like when it, when it comes and you open it up and you're sitting there in your house and you have this letter that's dated 50 years earlier, like what kind of memories did it bring up for you as you kind of scrolled through it? Uh, it brings up memories of uh, the relationship with my dad, uh, with my parents, the love that they had for each other but the hardships that they had. And um, life just becomes really, really hard. So to read this letter when he was 45 and still very, you know, vibrant and healthy and uh, um, was a real joy. It's kind of like talking to your dad again, almost. Like the ability to kind of like hear from him even though he passed, but you're still kind of hearing from him. Absolutely. You know, and I, you know, I don't know who believes in angels and whether they do or they don't, but uh, I do. And you think, wow, you know, so this is just another example of somebody's connecting us and reaching out, reminding us that we're still close.
You know, Evie, I think it's easy to walk past something that's just lying there and think to yourself, you know what? Someone else can look into that. Someone else can pick that thing up and find its owner. But I think this episode's reminding me that you're not just walking past an item. You're walking past all the stress, the worry, the anxiety, the frustration that someone is living with just knowing that they can't find that one thing. So maybe think about the joy and the happiness and the elation that you could bring someone by finding it for them and returning it. I love that. But if anyone comes across my childhood diaries that I once left on the plane, I'm going to need you to burn it. Um, <laughs> just turn it into ash, please and thanks. Yeah. Or send them to Trevor Deneen at... <laughs> no, they cannot see the light of day. <laughs> you can find pictures and videos of many of the things that were lost and found and still looking for a home on our CBC Now or Never Facebook and Instagram. Thank you to the Now or Never team of producers, Bridget Forbes, Sarah Tate, Andrew Friesen, Betsy Trumpener, Tanera McLean, and Katie Swales. Take care, everybody. We'll find you next time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.